Well, um, this morning I wanted to uh, I, I want to preach about marriage, and I I as I get started, I know that uh, there's a big mixture here in the audience, um, here in the fellowship this morning. There's a mixture of people who are married. Um, there's a mixture of people who aren't married. There's a mixture of uh, young people who aren't even thinking about marriage. Um, there's a mixture of uh, people who would love to be married but aren't married yet. Um, the, the beauty of God's word is that it is timeless and effective. Um, it's not one thing for a particular type of person. It's God's word for all people everywhere. So whether you're uh, 10 years old or 11 years old, like my daughter's down the front, or, uh, or 80 or 90 or 100 years old, God's word will be perfect and timeless and it will be applicable um, at every stage of your life. It does, in particular, speak to particular parts of people's lives. Um, and as we'll find today, this does talk about uh, marriage, the particular scripture that we're going to talk about. Um, yet, it, it tells of what it means to be human at the same time. And I want to dig into that a little bit as I go along. So um, some of you uh, may have heard me say we're going to talk about uh, marriage and go on, oh, okay, well, I'm done. Well, I don't need to listen anymore because I'm not even married or I, I'm not even thinking about marriage. Um, others of you I know have walked through very painful times in marriage and difficult times in marriage. Um, and we still can be, bring our lives before God and his word and, uh, and let God shape you and minister to you in amongst that. Um, so, here's where I want to start. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says this, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. has nothing to do with marriage. <laughs> but it does stay to be watchful. In other words, look out. Be on guard, be, be on the lookout, stand firm in the faith. Well, we can all do that. We can do that personally. We can also do that on behalf of others. Act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. The series that we're going through at the moment is a beautiful irony. It's considering how death actually can bring about life. Um, and we heard that very clearly throughout Easter Christ's death brought about life. His willingness to lay down his life for the sake of the world uh, brought about life for the world. And not just life here on the earth, but life eternally. And that's the best news ever. Uh, there's plenty of banter, though, going on around us regarding the word of marriage and the institution it's based on. And my goal this morning is not to provide a detailed apologetic and defence but instead to bring an encouragement to bolster marriages. The scripture above was written to Christians very liberal in their thinking and behaviour and were encouraged, uh, they were encouraged to be watchful of deception and lies, standing firm in the faith of Jesus Christ, acting like men, to be courageous and be strong and finally letting all that you do be done in love. As a little side note, a, a bit of a comment on marriage as an institution in a nation. Uh, the um, well-known Prime Minister, Robert Menzies, he was twice Prime Minister of Australia, he said this, I do not believe that the real life of this nation is to be found either in great luxury hotels 
and the pretty gossip of so-called fashionable suburbs or in the officialdom of organised masses, it's to be found in the home of people who are nameless and unadvertised and who, whatever their individual religious conviction or dogma, see in their children their greatest contribution to the immortality of their race. The home is the foundation of sanity and sobriety. It is the indispensable condition of continuity. Its health determines the health of the society as a whole. If he is right, then marriage and family is important for everyone. It's not just important for those who are married, it's important for everybody. Um, And to consider this, to consider marriage, to consider what it means to be a husband and wife, is to consider something that's important for everybody. Um, And so uh, I would encourage you, um, if you're a young person here today, uh, heading into senior high or or after senior high, um, the statistics suggest that you will be married one day. Most people uh, marry. It's a longing of the human heart. It's a desire of the human heart. There are some who God gifts with the um, ability to stay um, unmarried, and that's a wonderful gift. Um, and it ought not to be shamed, it ought not to be minimised, um, but the majority of people tend to get married. Um, the, the Family Research um, Institute of Australia has proven that. They, they've done studies and research over time to show that this is the case. And so as you consider this morning, young men and young women, uh, what, it, what it is to be married, I want you to consider it not just in light of perhaps what you observed as a as a, as a child in your own home. Um, I want you to consider it not just in light of what you see in the current society, but instead to consider it in light of God and his word. Because there is a grand picture of marriage in scripture, which I want to get to. Jay Adams, who's a biblical counselor, said this, though, about the problems in marriage. Most marriages develop their characteristic patterns not by, des- not by design, but by drift. Courses of least resistance, following one's own desires and the like, in time develop into patterns, but you'll never drift into God's pattern. Ooh, interesting. I would again say that's true of life. You'll never drift into God's pattern of living, his, his design and pattern for your life. Instead, it will come only by repentance, by prayerful understanding, and by conscious decision to follow it. That decision must be backed by a continued daily awareness of what you are doing and a repetitive effort to realise God's design in all you do. Hmm. Okay. This sounds a lot like, God, my life is here right now. Everybody has a history. Everybody has a past. I want to bring you my life and intentionally get it in line with your patterns. Get it in line with what it is that you want. So to consider that marriage is a place only for emotional love that will fulfill your happiness pushes away from the reality that marriage is meant for so much more than that. It has a much grander vision. Before I get to it, though, there's a, uh, a particular news anchor. Her name was Virginia Hausager, uh, and she wrote a probing article about the advice she received from her feminist mother's generation. She criticized those who said they could have it all. And here's what she said. For those of us who listened to our feminist foremothers about and applauded feminist leaders and writers, for all of us who took all that on board and forged ahead, crashed through barriers and carved out good, successful and even some brilliant careers, we're now let, many of us at least, as premature empty nesters. 
We're alone, childless, many of us partnerless, or drifting along in permanent temporariness to describe that somewhat ambiguous, uncommitted type of relationship that seems to dominate among childless professional couples in their 30s and 40s. It, it was a scathing look at, uh, at the effect that um, feminism, which had some positives, let's give it a fair shout here, it had some positives, it, it did a lot for uh, women, but it also brought with it um, some negative um, and the impact of that on women and particularly in this situation, young couples. What's interesting about this is the huge dissatisfaction that came from largely pursuing personal satisfaction in career goals while trying to combine this with marriage and family. Now, I fully appreciate that this isn't always the case. Not every woman who pursues a career and has a family is going to feel like this. Yet, I would say that it's true to some degree. Um, What she says and what she brings out um, is true to some degree. Further to this, research suggests that young people continue to aspire to marriage and family life and that this view had actually grown over the past few decades. Reflecting on this, scholars from the Institute for Social Research pose what they described as the biggest question facing young adults in the future. Hear me, young adults, young men and young women. I wonder if this has been a question that has been uh, uh, hankering inside of you. How do people choose among the principles of quality, freedom and family commitment when these highly valued goods become mutually exclusive rather than mutually enforcing, sorry, mutually reinforcing options? How do people take advantage of the freedom to pursue their own and individual goals and aspirations? This is, is where we're at as a society. We in Australia have incredible freedom. Um, you talk to a careers or guidance officer and they will just lay out the plethora of options for a young person to pursue. Here's what you could do. Here's, choose your adventure. Um, it's, wow, there, there is so much that a young person could do, yet, yet they know there's this deep hankering inside that family fits in there somewhere. That, that having a husband or a wife fits in here somewhere. It has to... Uh, I don't know, there's something in, there's something in me, um, whether they realise it then when they're um, 18, 19, 20, 21, or whether they realise it later down the track when they're 30 and they've pursued everything they want to pursue and suddenly are going, ah, there's more meaning here. There's, there's got to be something deeper about my life than just my career, than just making a good load of money, than just making a name for myself in whatever business I'm making. So how do I do it? uh, These aspirations, at the same time, they want to maintain family commitments and responsibilities. Well, I would suggest that to do that takes sacrifice. It takes sacrifice. It means that there's some things in your life that may have to be given up for the sake of something richer, something deeper, something more meaningful. So... Today, what I want to do is give you an image of marriage that is grand and that's worth pursuing. It's worth putting to death for. It's worth giving and sacrificing for um, because it's eternal, because it gets to the very deep fabric of our society. And that is, as a man lays down his life uh, for the good of others. 
As we go through this now, uh, I want to move into, that was by way of introduction. As we go through it now, uh, I want to open up to Ephesians 5 and take a marriage inventory, uh, look at a couple of myths about marriage, and then uh, finish with a word to husbands and wives, and then we'll finish together with communion. Ephesians 5 verse 25, if you've got your Bible there or your phone app or whatever you've got, um, if, if, you're, uh, if you're young... 18, 19, 17, 16. Can you open your Bible up? <laughs> I, want you, I want you to see this. I want you to be able to, yeah, on your phone, whatever. Um, I want you to see this. I don't want you to miss it. As I grew up as a, uh, as a young man, um, marriage became very significant to me. There was something really rich and important about it to me. And, uh, and as I began to have this grand vision of marriage, and I had this grand vision of what a family looked like. Um, it enriches me. It, uh, it gives me life as I consider it. Ephesians 5 verse 25 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Uh, Just by way of looking at it, who does this scripture talk about most? If you look at the marriage context, who does this scripture talk about most? Husbands, men. So there's going to be a large portion of this next section that is devoted to men uh, because... We need men. We need strong men who are going to love their wives in the same fashion as this. And who have a vision of marriage that would be greater than them getting their own satisfaction. Um, It will be richer than uh, husbands getting about their lives, doing whatever they want and expecting their wife and family to trail along behind. It's something far deeper. So let's get in. There's something about this mystery, as we've just read it, that brings you back to the simplicity of love that doesn't boast or compete to be better than someone else, but instead is not advertised, no-name love, sorry, but instead is the not-advertised, no-name love that draws you into the reality of God and his extravagant yet simply profound love displayed in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. There's life and grace found in giving up yourself for the benefit of others. There's life in that. Marriage ought to be a wonderful example of this. There were some words from the Council of Families in America and they said this, The institution of marriage was designed less for the accommodation of adults in love than for the proper functioning of society, especially regarding the care of children. Indeed, marriage as an institution is historically based on a fundamental realisation that all effective ties between men and women, no matter how biologically based they may be, are notoriously fragile and breakable. 
Because of this fact, an important aspect of marriage in both its legal and religious context are the vows of fidelity and permanence that are almost always part of the wedding ceremony. In large measure, these promises are designed to bind males to long-term commitment in order to foster the social institute of fatherhood. This flies in the face of a boy and a girl catching up, meeting up, and living together. There is no sacrifice there. There is no sacrifice. It's just two people getting what they want. And it will always, well, statistically... It says that those relationships, even if they do enter into marriage, are destined more likely to fail later on. It's proven statistically that their intimacy is far less enjoyable. Why? Because there's no sacrifice involved. It's just two people getting what they want. There's sacrifice involved for a husband who's willing to stand up before a crowd of people and before God, and say, I want to give up my life to bless this woman who is about to become my wife. And I commit to that for the remainder of my days. There is sacrifice and life to be found for a wife who's willing to do the same. Permanence and fidelity. These are words almost non-existent today. They certainly mean choosing once and remaining. To live under vow before God and man, to remain with one spouse till death do us part. This can be difficult and sometimes painful. Yes. (laughs) Sacrifice is always difficult and painful. This can uh, certainly, it, it can be difficult and painful giving up desires for others or for a single lifestyle. But we can trust Christ when he says to lose your life is to find it. And to keep your life is to gain nothing and even forfeit your soul. How, how much better to lose my life and to find it rather than to keep my life and to forfeit it? Well, here we come to uh, myth number one. It's essential, uh, <clears throat> it's essential that A marriage is founded on this idea of sacrificing and giving up one's life for the other. But here's a myth that can sometimes subtly creep in. This is one of those ones that can happen by way of uh, the path of least resistance. It's that trial and difficulty cannot be good for me. This is a myth to suggest that trial and difficulty is somehow not part of God's plan in our lives. Marriage has an intriguing way of revealing areas of your life that you would rather not give up, yet you'd be more fully alive if you give them up. At times it can mean walking through painful disagreements, challenging moments of having less than you may have hoped, and just plain discomfort. There's a well-regarded teacher um, at at my school uh, who once wrote about difficult life circumstances. Walls around us can also be called jail. When opposition is at all sides, perhaps it is a season in a jail cell God has for us, just like Joseph had in Egypt. Too often we interpret difficult circumstances in life as something we should avoid. Can you imagine what would have happened if Joseph successfully avoided or weaseled his way out of prison? If you don't know the story of Joseph, Joseph is um, the, the son of Jacob and he heads on into Egypt, sold and betrayed by his brothers, 
And, uh, and as he heads into Egypt, he becomes um, a master in Potiphar's house and he looks after the whole household. Um, his wife was sneaky and uh, wanted him to go to bed with her. Uh, he refused, but his wife made up another story. And uh, his wife decided to basically get Joseph thrown out because Joseph didn't give her what she wanted. And, uh, and so Joseph finds himself in um, the, the, um, the, the um, Potiphar's jail, which is basically a jail um, where you're left to die. Uh, it's for the worst of criminals. Uh, Joseph could have weaseled his way out. But instead, he remained faithful to God in that moment. He stood firm, and as he stood firm, the jailer could see that he was faithful. The jailer could see that he was trusted. And so as he, uh, as he stayed in that jail, he ended up becoming uh, like, a, like a chief um, warden of the jail. Uh, and he started looking after the prisoners. And, uh, and ultimately, that was his means. That was the means God used to actually see him leave jail and become second in charge, the vizier. Um, to the Pharaoh. What would he have done if he weaseled his way out? That would have sucked. (laughs) To be in jail unjustly, wrongly, wrongly accused, he could have weaseled his way out, but he didn't. Instead, he faithfully continued to walk on. Not only would he have missed the divine encounter that he had, but a whole nation would have perished by famine. Because we later find out that as Joseph was um, given the charge of vizier, he ended up leading uh, Egypt through the famine uh, by the wisdom that God had given him. We call it jail in the Old Testament and the cross in the New. Either way, it's actually something to be embraced, not something to be avoided and pushed away. So stand firm and keep walking through. God has a way of redeeming what we think are jail cells and turning deserts into rivers of joy. He's just not done yet. He's just not done yet. Myth number two. Myth number one, trial and difficulty cannot be good for me. Myth number two is a personal is that marriage is personal and private. Um, Renee and I had a, uh, a young couple uh, who came and, and just hung out with us um, recently. It was Friday night. And, um, and this young couple basically just had a desire to grow. Um, they, they knew that this myth was not true, that marriage is personal and private. We just do it ourselves. We work out our stuff. We, we, keep, um, we keep our own stuff going. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a myth. It's not meant to be a private ent- enterprise which will just happen naturally. Uh, there's... If you believe this myth that uh, marriage is personal and private, uh, you believe that there's nothing to learn. That there's nothing that you can grow in, um, that you can just work out your own stuff on your own. Um, this is incredibly isolating. And it actually leaves those who struggle in marriage, which let's face it, is everyone. <laughs> there's no marriage that's done. There's no marriage that's complete. There's no marriage that's perfect. Uh, everyone, if you choose to believe this myth... You end up floundering hopelessly about like a fish out of water. You you don't grow as much as you want to grow. You don't see fruit as much as you want to see fruit. Well, marital educators have found a number of false beliefs that many people believe about marriage, and in particular in relation to this myth. If you're in love, a relationship will be good spontaneously and will not require work. Uh, Yep. 
a relationship, especially marriage, just stays the same. It'll just be the same. There's no hope for change. <laughs> there's no hope. There's no, there's no possibility of change. The less we know about our partner, the more romantic our relationship will be. In a significant relationship, emotions must always be intense and positive. Ugh. That's difficult if you walk through suffering together, if you walk through some pain together. In marriage, uh, there must be constant sexual attraction. My partner must complete me. That is, they must make up for all my shortfalls. We will happily live happily ever after. Love means never having to say you're sorry. My spouse should always understand me. If my partner doesn't meet my needs, I'll find someone else. Love is enough. There's nothing to learn. If you love me, you'll do this, dot, dot, dot. I'll do my half. Can you hear that? Compare that to what we see in Ephesians. Compare what you just heard to what you see in Ephesians. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In doing this, you actually cleanse her and purify her and wash her um, wash her with the water of the word. Hmm. It doesn't sound like a 50-50 sort of agreement, does it? It doesn't sound like a partnership uh, that, that would, um, that, that's like a, a business partnership. Instead, it means uh, sacrifice. I'll give my life for yours. I'll surrender my life to bless you and give to you. Myth number three. Number one, trial and difficulty cannot be good for me. Number two, marriage is personal and private. Number three, conflict destroys a marriage. Well, this aligns with the false expectation that the other, whoever the other is, is meant to serve me and make me happy. And there would be no conflict. If you just love me, we wouldn't have to fight. (laughs) If you just do the things that I want you to do, we wouldn't have to argue. There wouldn't need to be difficulty. Paul is aiming here to display what a redeemed people will look like. Ones who are united to Christ. When it comes to, uh, to any conflict, conflict uh, has the potential to divide and to, to split and to, um, to bring about uh, nasty fruit. Yet, conflict also has the opportunity to deepen and to grow. Um, in what it means to understand one another, in what it means to love one another, and even to sacrifice uh, for the other. Um, I'm not talking about abuse here. I'm not talking about um, being a willing participant to abuse. I don't mean that. That takes another form of help. Um, But I do mean that conflict is usually always present in a healthy marriage. Um, And perhaps it's about learning to do conflict well. Well, Ephesians 5, if you have it open there, if you skip back just to verse 18, let's, um, let's take a look at what it says in verse 18. Because there's this, um, there's this word called submission that um, is well underdone in the church. It's well under-talked under about um, in, in trying to understand it, but it's not an evil word. Um, So in Ephesians 5, Paul is aiming here to display what a redeemed people will look like, ones who are united to Christ. It starts back in verse 18 with a mutual submission to one another out of reverence to Christ. There's a flavor of of deference here. Um, To defer what I want 
for the good of somebody else, to defer what I want for the sake of somebody else, um, to defer and consider their good before you just consider your own. Um, here's what he says. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Challenging word. I won't deny it. That's, I, that's tough. Um, if you find it hard to submit to Jesus, then you get it. <laughs> has anybody here found it difficult when Jesus has given, given a command or, or shown you a particular way and you found it hard to submit to it, to, to say yes Jesus, your words are life-giving. Your commands are good for me and I will follow. Has anybody found that hard? Anybody at all? Yeah. I found that hard. It's the human will not to do that. (laughs) It's the human will that's bent against submitting to Jesus. Well, you probably know how hard it is to submit for a wife to her husband. And you probably know how hard it is to do that to a man who's imperfect. (laughs) For, for a man to lead his wife and to bless his wife and to lay down his life for his wife, just as Christ did the church, woo, that's a big calling. Oh, it's a huge weight, but it's not impossible. It's possible because if Jesus commands it, if, if Paul's exhortation here to husbands and to wives is bigger than yourself and it's difficult, Good. (laughs) That's good. There ought to be something bigger than ourselves that we're living for and that we're attaining to. If we just get limited to what we think is our right or what we think is good for us, we're going to be limited. We're not going to be flourishing the way that uh, Christ intended for us to flourish. Most non-Christian households in Paul's day had this code displayed where the wife and children should treat the husband. So they had this um, code where it talked about how a wife and children should, um, should treat the husband. But in non-Christian households, it didn't talk so much about husbands and the way that they ought to treat their wives and their children. So Paul's command here flies in the face of his own culture. It flies in the face of what his culture uh, represented. And he's calling men to something higher. He's calling men to something bigger and deeper than just getting what they want. It does not give unlimited power to men for them to usurp and abuse and oppress those in their household. That is not what Paul is getting at here. Uh, There's a quote here that I I took from a um, a, uh, a theologian. There's little doubt what submission meant in the ancient world in which disdain for women was almost universal. William Barclay sums it up this way. The Jews had a lot of view of women. Sorry, had a low view of women. In the Jewish form of morning prayer, there was a sentence in which a Jewish man every morning gave thanks that God had not made him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. In Jewish law, a woman was not a person, but a thing. 
She had no legal rights whatsoever. She was absolutely in her husband's possession to do with as he willed. The position was worse in the Greek world. The whole Greek way of life made companionship between man and wife next to impossible. The Greek expected his wife to run his home to care for his legitimate children, but he found his pleasure and his companionship elsewhere. In Greece, home and family life were near to being extinct. Huh. That sounds familiar. Home and family life challenged under pressure. I wouldn't say extinct. Definitely not extinct. They were near to being extinct and fidelity was completely non-existent. In Rome in Paul's day, the matter was still worse. The degeneracy of Rome was tragic. It is not too much to say that the whole atmosphere of the ancient world was adulterous. The marriage bond was on the way to complete breakdown. Hmm. So, are you starting to get this picture that there's something deeper than just what I saw in mum and dad? Uh, there's something deeper in a marriage than just what I see in society. Maybe what I can learn from Disney. Maybe what I've learnt from Disney about what a marriage ought to look like. There's something far deeper. There's something far richer. And I'll come back to it again. Ephesians 5. I want to give a word to uh, husbands and wives here. Mostly to husbands and, uh, and then finish with wives. Elizabeth Elliot, who um, was, became a widow, widow. Um, her husband was a missionary, if I get this right, I believe he was a missionary in Africa. Um, can anyone confirm that? No? South America, thank you. Um, she became a widow, and, uh, but yet she was a fantastic writer and, uh, and had a good strong word as she wrote to her nephew. This is what she said. The world cries for men who are strong, strong in conviction, strong to lead, to stand, to suffer. I pray that you will be that kind of man, glad that God made you a man, glad to shoulder the burden of manliness in a time when to do so will often bring contempt. Men, young men, pointing the finger at me, men, We ought to aim for something high and lofty and big, a much grander picture of masculinity than what we currently know. Whether you're 17 or 16 or 10, hope that you aspire to some sort of manliness and masculinity that's bigger than just what you see around you. You imitate Christ by participating with him in his act of love. Be drawn into receiving of God's love through his great sacrifice in Jesus. Daily dwell in God's goodness to you and out of that you start to realise your weakness and sin and draw from the fountain of his grace for you. Husbands, love your wife by giving up your life for her just as Christ did. Limitless, unconditional, no matter what the personal cost, seeking their good. This is a massively high standard which is impossible to meet except by Christ, uh, by letting Christ first work in you. He did it for the joy set before him. It wasn't drudgery for Christ to lay down his life for his bride, the church. Instead, it was painful, 
but it was driven by joy in doing his father's will and making, his, uh, making holy his church. Emotion is largely not in view here. Emotion tags along behind the persistent covenant of love of husband to wife even when, uh, and even wife to husband. Once 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, displays love in an unreal way that's as far more reality than the wishful thinking that it will constantly be happy and make me feel good all the time. Um, try to escape. It, I'm a man and I've grown up in this culture. Um, I would say that I'm probably more emotional than most men and I, I get snagged by it. I get snagged by emotion um, numerous times and wanting to do just what my emotion would lead me to do. Uh, instead, God calls us, men and husbands, to um, forget sometimes that emotion. Um, not to let emotion be riding out the front all the time, but instead to lay down, sacrifice, so that you can see uh, your wife flourish. In the previous verses, Paul talks of husband as head, just as Christ is head of the body. The church, this is a privileged position of generosity. Our job as husbands is above all in the giving of love, while your wife is the one who gets to be loved. The head of the church, or the, being the head over someone or something, um, that's also an unpopular view right now. We sort of want to, we sort of want to smash anyone who's in authority. <laughs> We'd rather derail them. We'd rather see them um, get knocked down a few notches. Um, instead, Christ sets up this beautiful image of what it means to be the head of the church, to lead His bride, to bless His bride, to speak into His bride to um, lay down his life for his bride so that she might live. The bride is the church. That's you and me. That's us sitting here today. And this is the image of husbands in the way that they love their wives. If a husband is the head of his wife, it's not just a position of power and authority to get her to do what you want her to do. It takes Sometimes there is authority necessary and leadership necessary to go in a direction where you sense God is leading. Yet, most of the time, I would say it's to love and to sacrifice, to give up your life, to bless your wife. A husband, you get, as a husband, you get to take the initiative in self-donating love. Don't wait for everything to be right, for her to change, for your work to settle down, to be less busy. If the priority that Paul is placing here on marriage is second only to love of God, then now is the time to pause and pursue. Pursue your wife's submission. Uh, sorry, your wife's submission is meant to be motivated by this. It's not meant to be motivated by force. Scripture says you need to submit to me, so you need to do that. I don't get the image of that here. If Christ led in the way that he led, I want to follow him because I know he loves I want to follow him because I know he wants to bless and, and to lead me into good things and to right things. I want to, know because, I want to follow him uh, because I sense his love for me even in my moments of shame and even in my moments of weakness. Another way you could love your wife is to take notes on her. Take delight in learning about her. Uh, be a good student of your wife. Find ways to be an observer. Um, you might observe the footy and spend a lot of time observing the footy and knowing the scores and knowing the details and knowing which team's up. Um, for me, I take a lot of, of time uh, observing my work. Um, work has always been one of the top shelf things in my life. 
Uh, and so I take a lot of time to observe what's going on at work. And uh, I haven't always taken time to make the same observations at home um, for my wife. And so I, um, I learned, and I got the idea of someone else, I learned to open a, a little notebook, like a little book um, that's like a um, book for Renee, I think I called it. Um, it didn't have to be anything fancy, but it was just where I started taking notes on, uh, on things I noticed about her, things she loved, things she hated, um, things that uh, she delighted in doing. Maybe that's a way you could uh, love your wife. Ask how you can pray for her and serve her within the household uh, right at this time. That takes different stages as well, doesn't it? As a husband, um, you might have young children. That's just going to take more work. <laughs> and it's going to mean you sacrifice more of your time outside of the home to be in the home um, helping and blessing your wife. Um, maybe it's uh, later on um, when children are grown up and they've left home. Um, find ways that you can serve and bless your wife. Um, it might be the simplest thing like being the first to make a cup of coffee in the morning. I don't know. <laughs> um, being the first to um, cook, if you love, love cooking. Um, I'll leave it to you. You can get creative with it. Um, stop and take time daily to pause and share your life with her and hers with you. When self-donating, selfless pursuing, lay down your life for her good love is outpouring from a husband to a wife, then submission of a wife who receives this love is made far less difficult. And the apparently evil um, idea of submission um, changes to something that a husband and a wife would delight in doing for one another. The heavenly bridegroom's plan, Jesus' plan, is to sanctify his bride and to finally present her to himself. The sanctification appears to refer to the present process of making her holy in character and conduct by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. While the presentation is eschatological and will take place when Christ returns to take her to himself, he will present her to himself in splendor. Pause for a moment. Husbands, have you ever considered what your wife might look like at the end? Would it be something that you envision for her that she would look splendorous? Most incredible, most beautiful. Because that's what Jesus is doing with his church. When we have things like Restoration Group here, or when we have things like um, altar calls where you can come and, uh, and be prayed for, you know what Jesus is doing? He's making you splendorous. He's preparing a splendorous bride. A bride that will be perfected, made holy, made incredibly beautiful. Well, marriages are meant to imitate that. Marriages are made, meant to uh, see that come to fruition in a very real sense in the world. The word may hint at the bride's beautiful wedding dress since it is, shi- uh, since it is uh, used of clothing. But it means more than this. Glory is the radiance of God, the shining forth and manifestation of his otherwise hidden being. So too the church's nature will become apparent. On earth she is often in rags and tatters, stained and ugly, despised and persecuted. But one day she'll be seen for what she is, nothing less than the bride of Christ, free from spots, wrinkles or any other disfigurement, holy and without blemish, beautiful and glorious. It is this constructive end that Christ has been working and is continuing to work. The bride does not make herself presentable. It's the bridegroom 
who labors to beautify her in order to present her to himself. His love and self-sacrifice for her, his cleansing and sanctifying of her are all designed for her liberation and her perfection. When at last he presents her to himself in her full glory. Dr. Lloyd-Jones writes this, Dare I put it like this, the beauty specialist, Jesus, will have to put his final touch to the church. The massaging will have been so perfect that there will not be a single wrinkle left. She will look young and in the bloom of youth, with colour in her cheeks, with skin perfect, without any spots or wrinkles, and she'll remain like that forever and ever. I can't help but get emotional about that. Jesus is working. He's working in his church, and it might not look presentable all the time. If you today are part of his church, Jesus is working in you. He wants to work in you to make you the most incredible, beautiful bride that you could ever be. It won't always be popular. It won't always be pleasant. It won't always be nice. But you can have hope that Jesus will one day perfect you. That's good news. I, had a, uh, I read a poem once from John Piper, and he wrote this. Love her more and love her less. If you now aim your wife to bless, then love her more and love her less. If in the coming years, by some strange providence of God, you come to have the riches of this age and painless stride across the stage, beside your wife, be sure in health to love her more, love her more than wealth. And if your life is woven in a hundred friendships and you spin a festal fabric out of all, your sweet affections, great and small, be sure, no matter how it rends, to love her, love her more than friends. And if there comes a point when you, you are tired and pity whispers, do yourself a favour, come, be free. Embrace the comforts here with me. Know this, your wife surpasses these. So love her more, love her more than ease. And if your own should someday be, the craft that critics all agree is worthy of a great esteem and sales exceed your wildest dreams. Beware the dangers of a name and love her, love her more than fame. And if, to your spouse, not mine, God calls you by some strange design to risk your life for some great cause, let neither fear nor love give pause. And when you face the gate of death, then love her, love her more than breath. Yes, love her, love her more than life. Oh, love the woman called your wife. Go love her as your earthly best. Beyond this venture not, but lest your love becomes a fool's facade, be sure to love her. Less than God. It's not wise or kind to call an idol by sweet names and fall, as in humility before, a likeness of your God adore. Above your best beloved on earth, the God alone who gives her worth. And she will know in second place that your great love is also grace. And that your high affections now are flowing freely from a vow beneath these promises, first made to you by God. Nor will they fade for being rooted by the stream of heaven's joy, which you esteem and cherish more than breath and life, that you may give it to your wife. The greatest gift you give your wife is loving God above her life. And thus I bid you now to bless. Go, love her more by loving less. Love her more by loving less. A word to husbands. I want to finish now with a word to wives. 
in this whole thinking about marriage, um, I mean, husbands and wives are equal in their dignity. Um, They have um, immeasurable worth because God made them. Uh, There's no question about that. Yet, within marriage, it seems that there is um, a difference in roles. There's a difference between a man and a woman and a husband and wife in the roles that they take. Um, Submit yourself to this scripture, uh, Ephesians 5. Let it be something that you um, bring your life to and go, okay, what is it, God, about my life and my marriage that needs to submit to this incredible vision of, uh, of marriage? So wives, as you bring yourself to this particular scripture, there seems to be a strong command to submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. Um, So let me unpack this just for a moment. Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, Matthew Henry says, neither out of his feet to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him and near his heart to be loved by him. So what does it look like for a wife to submit to her husband? Well, drawing near to God every day. As much as that, that uh, poem says, love her more, um, love, uh, sorry, love her more by loving less, uh, it is beholden upon a man to love God and love his wife um, ordinately, but it's also beholden upon a wife to love God ordinately um, before her husband. Um, her husband isn't the ultimate. A wife's husband is not the, uh, the greatest, uh, most incredible person in the world. No, there's one spot reserved, one person reserved for that spot, and that's Jesus himself. So let your love for Christ and let your love for God uh, be ever-growing. Practice his presence as you daily walk nearer to him, submitting to, wonder, to the wonder of Christ's love and sacrifice for you each day. Be a willing recipient of his love. It seems weird to say this, but at times it can be difficult to, to receive love. Be a recipient of God's love, but also to be a recipient of your husband's love. Let it be that your husband's um, love is something that you cherish and that you receive uh, with, with a willing heart. Marcus Barth says this, The submission to and respect for the husband, to which the wife is specifically admonished, is by no means the submissiveness of a pussycat or a crouching dog. Paul is thinking of a voluntary, free, joyful and thankful partnership as the analogy of the relationship of the church to Christ shows. Whatever the, hu- whatever the husband's headship mirrors the headship of Christ, then the wife's submission to the protection and provision of his love, far from detracting from her womanhood, will positively enrich it. Your submission, wives, to his love is just another aspect of love, which is self-giving and not self-seeking. Your submission might look like praying for your husband, noticing, finding things that uh, he's doing, that he's taking part in, and praying for him, um, to, to bless him, to seek God's good for him. Um, but like that quote says, it's, it's not meaning that you are silent. Um, it's not meaning that you would never say a thing, in which case you'd be more like a doormat. Um, it's, that, that's not the, mirror, the image of submission. Think about the church and Christ. Does the church stay silent? No. (laughs) Jesus invites us to ask him for things, to seek him 
on, uh, on, on issues in our life, um, to desire uh, his working in our life. So um, speaking up, uh, asking questions is okay. Um, but overall, you'd bring yourself like a husband does to this scripture and go, Lord, there must be a point at which uh, my speaking up would look like submission. Maybe your speaking up would be persuasive and uh, it would be good for your husband to love you and, uh, and to see what you're saying is true and right and good. There's no um, qualm about that. There's no problem in that. But there may be times where as the husband is the head of the church, as the husband is the head of the wife, he will need to make a decision where um, a wife would submit to that. Um, I'll leave it at that. Uh, if today, as I conclude, if today uh, you're not married and you would like to be married, I want to acknowledge the, um, the sacrifice that this is in itself. This can be very painful. Um, this can be very difficult if you're walking through this and, uh, and it's something that you want and desire but potentially are sacrificing over and over because it's not being fulfilled in some way. Um, let me encourage you in the same way uh, that, um, that I've encouraged us the whole morning. You are the church and your first bridegroom, your first husband, um, is Christ himself. Um, your first love is Christ himself. And he will fulfill everything that you ever need. Um, any married person would tell you that their spouse does not fulfill everything that they need. Um, a husband and wife do not have the capacity to do that. But Christ does have the capacity to do that. So as I say that, I don't say that to make it easier. I don't say that to make it um, less difficult. But I do say that to give hope. Um, perhaps God will give you the desire of your heart um, in marriage. That would be wonderful and I, pr- I would pray for that. But perhaps um, that desire is something that won't be fulfilled and that will be okay as well because God's not done with you. Um, just because you're unmarried doesn't make you less uh, of a human or doesn't make you less um, precious in his church. Uh, no, that's not true at all. I would encourage you to keep pushing into Christ in that. Well, here's where I want to finish. Uh, I'd love for um, the elders to jump up and grab the communion. I'd love to share a communion together. Um, thank you. That's, um, that's gone for a good long time. And you're not asleep yet. That's, um, that's pretty amazing. Let me conclude here. The giving of oneself to anybody is a recognition of the worth of the other self. For if I give myself up, it can only be because I value the other person so highly that I wanted to sacrifice for, uh, myself for his or herself in order that he may develop his selfhood or she hers more fully. Now to lose oneself that the other may find his or herself, that is the essence of the gospel of Christ. It's also the essence of the marriage relationship. For as the husband loves his wife and the wife submits to her husband, each is seeking to enable the other to become more fully himself or herself within the harmonious complementarity of the sexes.